We've been working our way through uh, the book of Acts, and uh, the book of Acts is, uh, is uh, a fascinating book. It's a reminder to us of what the early church was like, and uh, it's uh, uh, um, an opportunity for us to see the way in which God is alive and well, and that Christ still continues to work in our midst. And we've been spending some time, and some of you might think, well, we're spending a lot of time, but we've been spending a, a, a bit of time on one particular story that started in um, chapter 3, verse 1, and has made its way um, all the way to chapter 4, verse 31. And I think I added it up correctly. That's 57 verses on one story um, that uh, Luke has recorded. Now, that's a lot of um, uh, ink spilt to help us understand one particular story. And I was thinking that through, and I thought, well, why did, why did Luke spend so much time talking about this? Why does it matter for us as a church today? And there was a couple of things that I was thinking about, one of, one of which is, and we've been singing about it tonight, is the name of Jesus. If you go um, from uh, chapter 3, verse 1 to the end of uh, 4.31, you find that the, the name of Jesus is referenced nine different times in the story. And I, I think there's a reason behind that, because what Luke is trying to tell us as we uh, look at the early church is that what invigorated it, what gave it life, um, what was the source of its power was the fact that Jesus was alive and well and continuing to work through them in the communities in which they lived. And again, my, my point has been that sometimes we get this notion that um, Jesus um, might have been alive and he certainly died and uh, then he was raised and he went into heaven and, and that's kind of where he waits now for this whole thing to unfold. Uh, well, that's not completely the case. He is in heaven, but he is regularly interceding for us here on earth, and he is working in and through us so that the power of Christ is still at work in healing. It's still at work in um, bringing people into a relationship with him. And in fact, uh, the, blind, or the, the lame man that was healed, it says that in the name of Jesus, he is healed. And then a little bit later, uh, Paul says that, or, or Peter says that there is no other name under heaven by which a man or a woman can be saved. And so he's painting this picture that although there was lots of things happening and many miracles taking place, this one miracle illustrates uh, in, in, in a way that the Spirit of God wanted us to know that Jesus is alive and well, and he is still at work in the church. And the result of this particular miracle if, if we can picture this and the circumstances around it, is that 5,000 people came to Christ. That's a staggering amount of people. Uh, that is, that is um, hard for us to, to wrap our heads around. That would be one-third of the amount of people that would go to a Vancouver Canucks game when it's sold out. One-third of those people came to faith in Jesus Christ in the period of a few days. This is an illustration of the power of the name of Jesus. And so he's been helping us, I think, to understand that uh, Jesus is alive and well. I think the other, another thing that he's trying to um, help us understand is that um, there is hostility and tension when we speak for Jesus and we live for Jesus. Uh, I wonder if we've, uh, many of us here have really experienced that, and, and if we haven't, I wonder why we haven't. But what he is clearly showing us here is that if you live for Jesus, if you talk for Jesus, if you speak in the name of Jesus, there will be tension and hostility uh, around you. And uh, uh, what, he's, what he's talking about here, and we saw it last week in that particular chapter, is that the name of Jesus offends people. The power of Jesus intimidates people. 
The fact that there is salvation only in the name of Jesus um, frustrates people. And so all of those tensions rise to the surface when, when, when the, the right things come together. And so this story illustrates the fact that with the name of Jesus comes tension and hostility. And, and so the reality is from this particular instance, and it is illustrative of so many other instances, is that as Jesus continues to work in and through the church, trouble is not far behind. Uh, and we see that in this story. The second thing that, that in general way that it, that it helps me um, come to understand is that this story illustrates the boldness of the disciples. Um, uh, in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, if you remember, uh, it was saying there that they were to wait in Jerusalem until they were filled with the Spirit. And we talked about what it meant to be filled with the Spirit. And once they were filled with the Spirit, they would have great boldness. Um, and boldness just it means a lot of things. It means guts. Uh, it means conviction. It means I don't, I don't care what you throw at me. This is what I believe, and it is important that I talk about this. And in fact, um, in 4 verse 13... After these guys had been intimidated, they had, um, they had been um, pushed around by the leaders of the group. They had spent a night in jail. Uh, they had still come out saying the same thing. And then it says, and when the leaders saw the boldness of Peter and John, it was something that was recognizable in them. And at the end of the prayer that we're going to look at tonight, what they pray for is we want to be more bold. We want to have a greater conviction in the name of Jesus. We want to have greater courage to speak for Jesus. And so we find that um, this, this passage illustrates this reality that when we are filled with the Holy Spirit and when we are, are speaking in the name of Jesus, that what comes with that is this great boldness uh, to share the gospel. And then I, I think the, the, the third thing that uh, sort of leads into the text is that there's this immediate connection in the church between worship and prayer. And uh, I, I so long to see that increase in our church. We do a lot of things well, and we do pray fairly well as a church. But I want to see us even pray more together. There's something that happens when the church gathers together and when we begin worshiping together, and there's this mixture between prayer and Scripture and singing. A prayer, after all, is us speaking to God, and the Scripture is God speaking to us. And so you mix that in in a church service, and you have people pouring out their hearts before God, people talking to God in prayer, and then as the Scripture is read and open, God speaks to us. And He continues then to fuel our prayers. And so we see this is taking place in this particular story as well. So where we pick it up in verse 23 of chapter 4 is that uh, Peter and John had been arrested, they had been shoved around, they had been intimidated, um, and they had been told to get out and no longer speak in the name of Jesus anymore. And they had said, well, you know what? You can tell us what you want to do, but we answer to a higher authority, and so we've got to continue speaking in the name of Jesus. So what do they do? Well, they go to where the church is gathered. They'd been um, intimidated. They had been um, spent a night in jail, and uh, they go to where the church is meeting. And I would imagine that this early church had already been meeting praying for them. God, help these guys. Um, I don't think this is what they expected. They didn't see this coming. Would you help them through it? And uh, all of a sudden, they show up at the church. And we, I've been at a lot of testimony services, but I've never been at a testimony services where, where a few Christians have shown up and said, you've got to hear what just happened to us. That's kind of what's going on here. Peter and John come in and they say, you've got to hear this, guys. You've you got to know what happened. You've got to hear what these guys said to us. And so they go and they tell their friends about what had been happening in their midst. 
And uh, rather than being um, sort of intimidated by it, they're almost rejoicing in the opportunity to share what God had been doing through them. I was reading this past week, and we think that maybe persecution in the church has ended. Um, and uh, if, if we do that, we're not terribly aware of what's going around or on around in the world. Um, statistically, they say there are more Christians that are giving their lives for Christ today than has ever been in the history of the church. So there is incredible persecution taking place in the church. I was reading uh, one particular um, uh, article on, in, in uh, one of the papers from London, about, uh, and it came through a blog that I also read, uh, about a, a fellow who was um, um, arrested in London for preaching. Uh, it was D- Dale McAlpin, who was 42 years old, was arrested in his hometown of Workington in Cumbria last month after he mentioned homosexuality as one of the number of sins listed in the Bible alongside idolatry, blasphemy, fornication, and drunkenness. He said he refrained from speaking about homosexuality in his sermon, but when a passerby inquired on the issue, he told her it was a sin. He was then approached by a gay community support officer who took him to the police station where he was detained in a cell for seven hours and charged with causing harassment, alarm, and distress. McAlpine, who denied the charge, was released on bail on the grounds that he ceased from preaching. Isn't that what we just have here? You can go, but stop preaching. On the grounds that he ceased from preaching. Writing in the Telegraph, former Catholic Herald editor Christina Oden condemned the action by the police, saying, McAlpine was another victim of the new Inquisition. Fueling the Inquisitors is a vicious secularism that allows no tolerance for views based on Christian values, she said. Freedoms of speech and conscience are important, but do not automatically trump all individual rights. A civilized, tolerant society requires negotiation between these freedoms and rights, between a preacher's right to proclaim his belief and a gay's freedom to live out her sexuality. Such negotiation requires confidence in one's own belief system and respect for those of others. These qualities have been squashed instead by a tiny and unrepresentative political class that respects only the secularized side of the equation. I only point that out just to say that, that um, you know, we might think of persecution happening in India, and it does, or in um, uh, Burma, and it does, or in Africa, and it does, but it's not the kind of thing that we think happens in Britain, in London, um, and it's certainly not the thing that we think is happening around here, but nonetheless, um, uh, it's just an illustration that this kind of stuff is, is still going on. Uh, so they gather together, they come and they say, you know what, we, we, this is what happened to us. And they got together, and what did they do? They prayed. This is what they, they did. They got together in verse 23, it says that they were released, they went to their friends, they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them, and when they had heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God. That's what they did, they, they started praying. And listen to the way that their prayer begins in verse 24. Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. That's a a very unique way of talking about God. A very unique way of, of, of naming Him. And it tells me about how they were thinking about their situation and how they were thinking about God. The word is the word from which we get despot. Which you might think, well that's a bit strange. Uh, it's a word, though, that means master. Uh, and, and in those days, uh, uh, it talked about slaves and masters. Slaves had no rights. They, con- they, they su- submitted completely to the will of their master. It's also, though, used of, of God and, and Jesus. It suggests uh, there is one with absolute authority, one who commands and exercises power. 
Uh, and so then when they use this, it gives insight into how they were viewing their relationship with Jesus and God's way in the world. And we, we submit to Jesus. And so there are times in which no matter what happens to us, no matter what the circumstances of our lives, one of the things that we do is we submit our wills to God, even though we don't understand what's going on. And so they begin their prayer with, Sovereign Lord, the one who is our master, the one who has complete authority over our lives, the one who guides and directs the way that we live. It's another way of acknowledging the sovereignty of God. And you begin to, and it will make sense as we go through this. It's astounding to me the way that they, um, they take their situation and they put it into a Christian framework, into a biblical context. Listen how they talk about the characteristic of God. The first thing they do is they talk about God the creator. You think, well, what does that have to do with anything? But in, in verse 24... They say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. I I think that that's the way of starting out big. It's their way of singing, this is my Father's world. It's their way of saying that all this world and everything in it submits to you, Sovereign Lord. It's their way of acknowledging that there's not one radical um, rebellious Adam in this whole universe. This is God's world. He made it. He created it. He sustains it. He determines everything that takes place in this world. In other words, they're saying, God, your power is displayed in every nanosecond in this universe. There's not a second, there's not even a nanosecond in which you're not guiding and governing and directing the framework of this world. In other words, what they're doing is they're submitting what they have just gone through into the context of this powerful creator who is their sovereign Lord. I think sometimes we need to stand back when we find ourselves in difficult situations and we need to look at things with a larger perspective. These threats, they're being put in jail. It all happened under the eyes of a watchful sovereign Lord who had made these men, who had made them, who had made the city, who had made the world in which they live, who controlled everything in that world. And what was happening in their lives was not catching God by surprise. It wasn't happening in a context in which God had no control or no input. And so the troubles that we face are not outside of the governing, commanding power of God. And so as they submit their situation to God, the first thing that they do is they say, Sovereign Lord, our master. This, our worlds might appear out of control because of what we've just gone through, but this is your world. You made it. You sustain it. You govern it. You guide it. That's an amazing way to find comfort and encouragement. And so that's the first thing that they pray. The second thing that they pray, strangely enough, is they, they acknowledge the revelation of God in this. And you think, well, what does that have to do with anything? Um, and it's Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, who said that there's two great books in the world. There's the world book, which is um, the heavens declare the glory of God. So there's all of nature. There's all a world around us in which God speaks. God reveals. God shows us what he's like, his power, his might, his strength, his wisdom, his beauty. All of that is revealed in creation. And then Spurgeon says, and there's his word book. There's the Bible in which he specifically reveals our lives and his way with us. 
And so they start with creation, with the world book of God, and then they zero in on the special revelation of God. And they said, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Now there's something we need to catch here for a moment before we, before we move on. It tells us how we need to understand the Bible. If you have come um, for any length of time, you have heard me and others refer time and time again that this Bible is the Word of God. It is a unique book. It is an eternal Word of God. There, are, there, is, um, there, there is a characteristic about this book that is not found in any other book in the world. This book is uniquely inspired, breathed out by God, so it contains the very words of God. And, and you say, well, that's easy for you to say, but I don't, I don't believe that. Well, there's a point in which you have to um, submit to the witness of testimony itself. You have to submit to the, the effect of the Word of God in your life, the truthfulness of the Word of God, the way that what is prophesied in the Word of God comes to pass. And after a while, the cumulative effect says there is something unique about this book. It's not like any other book. And so, um, how did this book come to pass? Um, this living word of God. Well, uh, Paul says about it, he says, all scripture is breathed out by God. So there's a divine quality about this book, but it's, it's, it's not something that God just, it was all there. And it's something that was, um, that, that was not written by all of a sudden some guy sitting in a study and then he, and he starts writing in a trance. Um, that's not how the Bible was written. The, the Bible was written in such a way that God used the personalities, the experiences, the backgrounds uh, of the people who wrote the book, and he, he, he worked through them by his Spirit to write exactly what he needed to say to us. Um, the, the Scripture says in 2 Peter chapter 1, um, verse 20, Knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. In other words, people just didn't sit down one day and say, I think I'm going to write a book of the Bible. Or they didn't sit down one day and think, I'm going to write a prophecy. Uh, he says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God, through his Spirit, guided them in what they should write. Told them what they should write. So at the end of the process, although he used their experiences, he used their, their emotions, he used their unique perspective on the world, God guided them to write exactly what he wanted them to write so that their words were true and not false. Their words were, in fact, his words and not theirs. So they come back to this and they say, you revealed this stuff um, through, through your, your servant David. Well, when did David write? David wrote... Um, back in about 900 B.C., 1,000 B.C. So this is happening um, 1,000 years earlier. And they're referring to Scripture, and they're saying, well, God, you said this would happen. That's what they're, as they're praying, they're saying, well, yeah, this is what God said. This is what's happening. So why should we be surprised by it all? And they quote Psalm 2, which we won't look at, uh, in, but it's a messianic psalm. And it's a psalm that talks about the rebellion of men towards God. The rebellion of people that says, I don't want God to rule over me. I don't want God to tell me how to live. I don't want God having any part in my life. It might be good for you, but it's not good for me. And so they rail against God, and they say to God, we don't want you um, to do anything in our situation and in our life. And what is going on is, is he's saying there is and there will continue to be a united rebellious conspiracy 
and yet a futile hostility against God's people. Do you see how now this is beginning to encourage them? They're saying, oh, this is the circumstances of our life. I need to read scripture and see if it addresses it. Oh, here's Psalm 2. Psalm 2 does say that there will be people who will attack me. There will be people who rail against me because I'm one of God's servants. So again, do you see what they're saying? Sovereign Lord, you have made this world. You are the creator. Sovereign Lord, you have revealed in your scripture that men and women have rebellious hearts towards you and they will attack your servants. You see how it's beginning to fall into place? And rather than them moping, rather than them cowering into a corner, all of a sudden you can see them beginning more and more encouraged. Saying, wow, this is, this is, we're in good hands. We're in God's hands. God said that this would happen a thousand years earlier. And so we see it happening. And we go on. There's a third thing they talk about in here is they talk about history. It says, so not only is, is God the creator of the world, not only has God said that this stuff would happen long before it ever happened, but in, in, he says in history, these rulers are actually doing their thing. He's realizing there is a real cost for following Jesus. He realized that people would be threatened, other people would be threatened by the reign and the rule of Jesus. Realized that God knew this long before it would happen. Example one, look at how they attacked Jesus. That's what he, he says here. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Again, all words from the psalm. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. See what they're saying? They're, they're all of a sudden realizing, well, this is, how, this is what's happened before. They're looking at Jesus Christ himself. And they're saying, well, they plotted against Jesus. They gathered against Jesus. But as the psalmist says, it was all in vain. They recalled God's sovereign power and the accomplishment of his plan. Even though his enemies tried to do him in, they accomplished what his plan had said would happen. So everything that happened to Jesus, none of it was a mistake. None of it happened outside of God's will. In fact, the death of Jesus, all his suffering, all his hardships, all that he endured on the cross was not just, oops, a second thing in God's plan, but it was the plan from the beginning of time that he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And so even in the suffering and the persecution and the death of Jesus, God's plan was being worked out. See what's beginning to happen now for them? I can just see them in this room, and, and they're probably starting to shake. They're probably starting to get excited. Wow, this is, this is, we're part of God's plan. God's using us. This isn't random stuff. We're not sort of out on a limb on ourselves. Well, this is, this is great stuff. And then they come to uh, the second example, and, and they say, and, and look, what you're, look what's happened to us now. He says in verse 20, Oh, Lord, look upon their threats. They're talking about their own specific situation now. And God is not unawares, loved ones, of the stuff that you are suffering. I was reading in Numbers, um, I think it's 10, 11, or 12, might be Numbers 11. And um, there was Moses, um, Miriam, and Aaron. And something must have been going on uh, between them because um, um, uh, Miriam and Aaron were filled with jealousy about, to Moses and all the power that he had. And what happens, we often don't go talk to the person about it, but we start spreading rumors behind their back. And so they started mocking him because he had married a, 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 a I think it was a Cushite woman, 
Uh, and so they were, they were just, you know, oh, Moses, you know, why does he have the power? And look, you didn't even marry an Israelite. And it says, and God heard what they were saying. Whoa. You know, we need to be so careful. We might think we're speaking on our own. We might think we're at coffee just talking about somebody. We might think we're going for a walk with a friend and, and, and going after them. Know that God hears. And so they said, God, look at what they're doing to us now. In other words, God, you're aware of what's happening. And it's fascinating to me. They don't ask God really anything. They just simply point out, God, look at what they're doing to us. They're really making our lives difficult. They're threatening us just as your servant David spoke through the Holy Spirit, just as he said they would. The same group, Lord, that has persecuted Jesus is now persecuting us. The end of that persecution of Jesus was his death, but look at what that accomplished. It was according to God's hand. Um, it's according to God's plan. He was guiding it all. Lord, we see the wisdom in the suffering and the death of Jesus now, and so if that's what's in store for us, we submit ourselves to your hand. They basically say, whatever you bring into our life, because you're the God of creator, because you said this would happen in your word, because we've seen what happened in Jesus' life and the way that it was according to your plan, no matter what happens in our lives, Lord, we submit ourselves to you. So they conclude that their suffering is not outside of God's plan. Now at this point in my life, um, if I had been there, I might have ended the prayer there and said, Sovereign Lord, Creator, Redeemer, God of history, I understand that you're in control. Thanks for that opportunity I had to share about Jesus. Uh, I'm going to go back to work now. And that's probably how I would have ended it. But listen to what they ask for. It's amazing to me. Uh, it gives us an insight into some, what somebody's life is like that is just taken over by the Holy Spirit, sold out for Jesus. Look at what they asked for. And I think what they asked for is rooted in what they had just prayed. Because they know God is creator, because they know God is revealed and said this would happen, because they have seen the way that God's hand was at work, they can ask for what they ask for. And look at what they ask for. God, grant your servants boldness to continue to speak your word with all boldness. That's amazing. What they're saying is, God, would you continue to give us courage in the face of threats? God, would you continue to fill us with conviction about the name of Jesus? God, would you continue to give us confidence that we are doing what you would have us do? God, you said this would happen. You said that their raging would be in vain, but help us keep at it. Give us even more boldness. Isn't that amazing? Just help me to be more like what I was before. And your servants, notice they're in good company. They had called David his servant. They had called Jesus his servant. And now they're saying, and we're your servants too. Sovereign Lord, Master, we're your servants. Grant your servants greater boldness. And then, notice what they say. What was it that got them into trouble in the first place? It was that God, through the name of Jesus, had healed a lame man. And so listen to what they say. Will you stretch out your hand to heal? Will you continue to do what brought us trouble in the first place? Would you continue to heal people? Would you continue to show your power? Would you continue to show your might? Would you continue to show that Jesus is alive and well? Would you continue to show that Jesus is able to, to heal the lame, to give sight to the blind, and to save people? Would you continue to stretch out your hand to heal? 
In other words, don't stop working, God. Don't start, stop working on account that I might be a little bit afraid. In fact, God, would you, would you give us even greater boldness? And would you do even more miracles in our midst so we have even more opportunities to proclaim the name of Jesus, to say that it's the name of Jesus that can heal, it's the name of Jesus that can save. No matter what it costs us, would you fulfill your plan through us in this world? And then they say in signs and wonders that would be performed through your holy servant Jesus. Again, they, 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 they're, they're praying. Jesus is not in heaven. Jesus is at work through them. Jesus is still at work in the community. That's what I've been trying to get us to, to understand, that the book of Acts is the fact that Jesus is alive and well and still working in our community. If we can only grasp this and, and, and realize that Jesus still wants us to speak for him, Jesus still wants to heal people, Jesus still wants to save people, there is power in the name of Jesus. Sovereign Lord, creator, reveal, history maker. It's like the, the guys on the plane that, that crashed, that was headed for the Pentagon, and it gra- crashed in the field. And uh, I think you know the story how the hijackers had taken over the plane, and they didn't really know what to do. They had heard that a couple planes had been flown in the Twin Towers. I think they were a plane aware that a plane had been flown into the Pentagon, and they were thinking, what shall we do? And then all of a sudden, they knew that imminent death faced them, but uh, the word or the phrase that they used was, let's roll. I think that's what these guys are saying here. They faced all that they faced. They know they're probably going to face more. And yet at the end of their prayer, they say, let's roll. God, give us greater boldness. God, do more stuff in our community. Give us more opportunities to speak about your name. Some of you here, and I know this, and I've been talking to you, and I've been talking to others in, in some of our other venues that meet, you're beginning to share your faith. You're beginning to take risks that you've never taken before. You're beginning to talk in your workplaces, in your schools, in your neighborhoods. And, and I think that we can find some help from a text like this if you're in those kind of situations. One is don't be surprised if you face opposition. That's just part of the rebellious nature of men and women, that they, they don't want anything to, G, to do with Jesus. They don't want to be told how to live. They don't want to be told that maybe there's another way. So don't be surprised if you face hostility and threats as you share the good news of Jesus Christ. Secondly, remember that God is sovereign. He is the sovereign Lord. He is the creator. He is the revealer. Remember that no matter what happens in your situation, it's not out of control. God is in control. His hand is guiding. His hand is directing. His hand is leading. As you face opposition, and, and you will face fears, and you will tremble a bit, but why not be like the disciples here? God, would you give us greater boldness? Would you get, give me a greater conviction in who Jesus is? Would you give me a greater understanding about the power of the name of Jesus? Pray for boldness. Lord, I, I want to be filled with this boldness to tell others about you and allow for God's plan to be worked out in your life. One person wrote, um, and if you know, he wrote, if you know Psalm 2, you also know that God's response to the railing of these people uh, to such arrogance. The rulers of this world are taking up arms against the Almighty. They're gathering their weapons, missiles, tanks, and guns to fight God and cast off his chains. But what does God do? Does God tremble at the united opposition of the world? No, he does nothing of the sort. God laughs at them. This is the only place in the Bible, Psalm 2, this is the only place in the Bible where we are told that God laughs. The one enthroned in the heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. 
Perhaps the Lord says, ha, do they really think they can break my, my bonds? And then he points to Jesus Christ and he says, I have installed my king on Zion on my holy hill. So there's a, there's a number of scriptures. Um, maybe I'll just read one or two of them to you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world and I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not some, not just the good ones, not just the lazy ones, but all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32 um, and following. I won't read it all, but he talks there about having compassion on those in prison and joyfully accepting the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. Matthew 5, 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Loved ones, it's, it's part of life. It's part of living for Jesus. It's part of being convinced that there's power in the name of Jesus. It's part of being convinced that there is no other way to the Father but through Jesus. It's like you know the only way out of a burning house, and you, you talk to people, you, you, you wake them out of the bed, and you say, you got to go, this is the way to go, this is the way we got to go, and they resist, and they fight, no, you've got to come with me because this is the way to safety. Well, is that not what we believe about Jesus Christ? Do we not believe that in Jesus Christ there's salvation in him and him alone? Do we not believe that in Jesus Christ there is the way, the truth, and the life? Do we not believe that in the name of Jesus there is power to heal? There is power to deliver? Oh, that we would gain the boldness that they demonstrated here. And then finally, what do they receive? And we'll do this really quickly. This is such a cool, cool verse. Verse 31. And when they had prayed, I, you know, I, sometimes I, I, I long for this kind of stuff to happen. Um, I don't know why it doesn't happen, um, and I don't want it to just happen because I want to have a good experience. I just want to have confirmation of some of the things that, that happen in the Scripture. But notice what it says, first of all. It says there, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. Shaking is a sign of the presence of God. Whether it's the mountain of Sinai that Moses goes up to and it was shaken. Whether it was the upper room in which the disciples first, the Holy Spirit was pulled out and wind blow through it. Or whether it's now, it's a sign of the presence of God. It's God's way of saying amen to their prayer. And so as they were praying, it's like, it's like God is saying, I'm with you. Right on. You've got it. You understand what, what I've sent you to do. You understand what I've equipped you to do. And it's this assurance that they are in God's will. The place was shaken. The second thing he says there, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. That tells me something about the power of God. You say, well, wait a minute. Weren't they filled with the Holy Spirit back in chapter 2? Well, yeah. But I believe that the filling of the Spirit is a, is a continual thing that happens to us. I don't know if this is correct, but one of the ways that I like to explain it is, some of you are, st are familiar with the story about Jesus as he's walking through a crowd of people. He's walking through this crowd of people, and there's a gazillion people pressing around him and, and pushing him. And, and all of a sudden he stops, 
And he says, somebody touched me. <laughs> and typically, well, Jesus, come on. Like, there's a whole bunch of people. What do you, what do you mean somebody touched you? Of course somebody touched you. And he says, no, I, I felt the power leave my body. And I, I think there's something about, about the, the Holy Spirit that as, we, as he fills us up, he's poured out as we serve and minister, and then we're filled up again in a fresh way to serve and minister, and then we're filled up again, and we're filled up again. And so you see this in the book of, of Acts, that they're just constantly filled with the Holy Spirit. They're constantly saying, Lord, I need more. Lord, I need more. God, fill me up again. God, I feel empty today. He fills them up again. And so the place that they were, um, were, were in was shaken. They were filled again with the Spirit of God. And then they, they went out with the promise of God. And listen to what it said. They were, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. I like that. Um, they weren't intimidated by the threats of the people. They weren't intimidated by jail. They weren't intimidated by beatings. They weren't intimidated by, by evil threats. They continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. I think that just describes this one incident then helps us describe the, the picture of the church filled with the Spirit of God going out in the name of Jesus and continuing to work in his name. And so, loved ones, I, I just, you know, would, would, why don't we pray? Why don't we, we be like the disciples and be like the early church and say, Jesus, we want to see your name magnified. Would you give us boldness to, to not shrink back? Would you give us boldness to say there's healing in the name of Jesus? Would you give us boldness to say there's deliverance in the name of Jesus? Would you give us boldness to say to those who are lost and in despair that there is salvation in the name of Jesus? And no matter what the cost, no matter what the price, to rejoice that for one, salvation has come to their life because of Jesus. For another, their legs have been healed because Jesus has touched them. To another, they've been delivered by a demon because Jesus has touched them. We need this in our community, loved ones. We need this in our neighborhoods. We need this in our schools. We need this in our places of business. We need it in Arrington. We need it in Qualicum. We need it in Parksville. We need it in the news. We need this community to know that Jesus Christ is alive and well, and he is still at work. Let's pray.